So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 36. And we've been looking at a lot of the bad news. Ezekiel, for the first 24 chapters, is a lot of bad news, the bad news according to Ezekiel. But eventually, um, there is a shift in what God does in, um, in Ezekiel and in his heart and in the community that he's in, that God says, it's enough with the bad news, it's time to give hope. And um, at the lowest point in the nation of Israel, God says, we have to give hope. And so we're beginning, and we're beginning this new year looking at the good news, the gospel, according to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. Once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, let's all stand together as I read this. For those who are able, if not, you are able to stand in your heart, right? We stand in attention in our hearts, for sure. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you profane among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey all my rules. This is God's word. Amen and amen, you may take a seat. You know, I've told this before, but when I was 14 years old, um, I went to a Christian rock concert. I grew up Roman Catholic. I had never seen or heard anything like it, as you might well imagine. Um, and, um, you know, it was rock music about God, and after the music stopped, the lead singer of the band got up, and he basically started talking about the world tries to find fulfillment in all kinds of stuff, all kinds of uh, pleasures, all kinds of things, success, whatever it is that people try to fill themselves up with whatever they can find, power, money, feeling good. But he went on to say that the only way to experience a full life, a fulfilled life, a life of meaning and a life of purpose was through Jesus. And a person only had to admit their need for him and cry out to him and ask him to come into their life and that Jesus would do that and provide that life to the full. I was 14 years old. First time I'd ever heard what I came to find out later was the gospel, the good news, the offer of God's saving power available in Jesus. 
And it brings up a question that many Christians ask and that you might ask, and even as, as you hear that message of God's saving power being available, this question of what is the gospel? What is good news? When we talk about the good news, the gospel, what are we saying? I would simply put it this way, and I know there's, there's a lot of consternation that can surround this question depending on what tradition you might come from and what needs to be included in a gospel message, but the gospel is essentially this some kind of proclamation that God's saving power is available in Jesus. Put simply, if you, if you would, you can test, you can try it later, we can work it all out, but basically this idea that God's saving power is available in Jesus. Now, I also, I I have been through seminary, and I've done plenty of work theologically. I am a trained theologian with a PhD, so I know that talking about the gospel can raise people's ears, and there can be lots of people who are like, well, if you're going to, you, if you're going to say you gave the gospel, you have to include this, and you have to include this, and you have to include this, and I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to conversations like that, and those are mostly helpful, and I think they're mostly well-intentioned, but Sometimes, as I have read the New Testament and read the Bible, sometimes what I find is that biblical authors tend to lean on certain metaphors in their writings that other authors might not lean on, and that other authors might lean on other metaphors and other emphases that maybe not every other writer will lean on. And so, because I love the Bible, okay, I I do love the Bible, I mean, I guess when I, when I feel like somebody asked me, well, what is your call? When did you know you were called to the ministry? And I was like, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't feel like I was called to the ministry. I felt like I was called to the Bible. And, um, and ministry followed, to be quite, to be sure, yes. But most of my, my, my academic training and PhD and whatnot has been in the service of understanding and teaching the Bible. Ministry has come along, but being called to the Bible. So I love the Bible, and it's because I love the Bible that I have to say, look, different authors give the gospel in different ways, okay? And this idea that there's some kind of, whenever an author of the Bible talks about the good news, they tend to go from a certain problem, right, to what is the solution to that problem, or sometimes writers, they just offer the solution and we go back and we kind of deconstruct it to say, well, what is the problem then? And so what I want to do this morning is I, I want to, um, I, I, well, just a little survey here. Some authors, they like the metaphor of the court of law. And they'll use language like justification and righteousness. And, and, uh, and they'll use court scene imagery to talk about the movement from guilt to righteousness. Other authors like the more commercial metaphors of like the idea, they'll use uh, language like you were bought at a price or you were a slave or something like that. And the movement is from, the problem is going from slavery to freedom, right? That every author uses maybe one or more of these metaphors or maybe the metaphors of personal relationships using language like you were at odds with God or you were enemies of God. And that the problem is this enmity, this, this relational estrangement, and the problem is estrangement, and we move to embrace from enemies to friends with God. 
Some of, these, some of these might resonate with us, others might not. Like, we don't go to a temple to worship, but a lot of the writers of the New Testament use temple and worship, cultic worship language, things like sacrifice and mercy seat, priesthood, blood, washing. And this implies the movement from defilement to cleansing, right? You guys can see how this, this movement from problem to solution is embedded in the gospel, but depending on the metaphor that's used we get different language out of this. Some people like the battleground metaphor. And you'll hear triumph and victory and overcoming and destroying the works of the devil. And the idea is that the the, the devil, there's a battle going on. There's a war. And the the problem is the war, the war with, with forces of darkness. And the solution is victory, right? And then finally, this idea, even like an agricultural metaphor, that we have this corruption within creation, and we're moving to new or renewed creation. All of these are metaphors, and all of them contain the good news, okay? All of them contain the good news. And when we read passages in our Bibles or different books of the Bible, one of these metaphors might be more or less predominant. And sometimes authors, like the Apostle Paul, he'll conflate a whole bunch of them. And so he'll mix metaphors, which is always fun when you're like, you know, you can't have your cake and eat your you know, piece of pie. Like, it's, it's like, you know, you mix these metaphors that didn't land as well. See, this is why I bring the pen up, because then you know, for next time, I just scratch that one out. All right. Hang with me, everybody. Hang with me. Okay. So, each of us, each of us, as we're in here, and as we think about how the gospel, the good news about God has been presented to us, maybe one of those metaphors is maybe more or less how you explain your relationship with God. Maybe it is the guilt to innocence, or maybe it's slavery to freedom, or maybe it's unclean to being washed clean, or maybe it's the idea of, of corrupted to new creation. Whatever it is, these are all, this is all in the ballpark. These are all the clubs in the bag, everybody. Anybody golf out here? Right? You don't just use one club on the whole course. Like, if you get on the green and you pull out your driver, it's like, look, look, you got a putter, use the putter. Like, all of these are the clubs in the bag, okay? And they are all about the gospel, the good news. And what we do, whether, whether you've heard the gospel once, or this is the first time you've heard it, or whether you've heard it a thousand times, or if you've never heard it before, this morning what we want to do is we want to kind of pay attention to the book that we've been in, Ezekiel. And we want to ask the question, what is the good news according to Ezekiel? If Ezekiel were standing before us today, which he is in, this, in these passages, how would he put the good news of God's saving power, that God's saving power is available? Ezekiel does come before Jesus, and so we, help, we know that what he's pointing to is Jesus, but what is the gospel Ezekiel style? We've heard, we've heard judgment Ezekiel style, have we not? We've heard a lot of that. But what we want to do now is we want to pay attention to how God is explaining that his saving power is available. How does he do that through Ezekiel? You guys with me? All right, no more bad jokes. I can't really promise that. I mean, that, I can say that, but it's not really true. So um, anyway, let's set the stage. Let's look at uh, chapter 36, verse 22, and let's begin, let's kind of set the stage for our passage. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which 
you came. Now, as we think about the good news, the gospel, and all these metaphors, all these things, they move from problem to solution. The first thing we ask with the gospel according to Ezekiel is, what is the problem? And as we begin this passage, we find out what the problem is. The first thing we can note is that God's name has been profaned. And we've got the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, six years out of Ezekiel's life. i got a feel for Ezekiel, don't you? For six years, God says, hey, go out, lay down in the street, wage war, <laughs> siege, lay siege to this model of Jerusalem, and, and get, grab your baggage and go out and do all these things, and explain that there's a problem. Explain that there's a problem. Now, Ezekiel, nobody's going to listen to you but explain to them that there is a problem. And Ezekiel does that. And as he explains to them the problem, the reason why God's name has been profaned, as it says in our passage this morning, is because of idolatry. It says, O house of Israel, I'm about to act for your sake, for my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And what we find is that the nation of Israel had profaned God's name because they had, um, they had trusted in things other than God for their protection. They had gone to foreign nations. They had, and as they went to foreign nations, they adopted their gods. And back in Ezekiel chapter 11, 8 through 11, that we found that the temple that was supposed to be for Yahweh, the one true God, that there had been all these idols set up in the temple and there were all these ceremonies going on in, 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 in public as well as in private rooms that were honoring these foreign gods. And that God's name was being profaned. And this idea that God, has, His name has been profaned It says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. And here's one one thing that we want to note about this good news, is the problem, though it was done by the nation of Israel, and though they need God's saving power, God's saving power exists for who? God says, look, I'm going to do this for you, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the sake of my name. There's something, there's something so, there's something so God-centered about Ezekiel's worldview and what Ezekiel tells us, that it is for the sake of God that God is doing this work. It's for the sake of himself that God is doing this work. We will be in the wake of the wonderful blessings of God, but God is about doing something in and for himself as he works to save around him. And what we find is that the good news, as the nation of Israel understands it and as we hear it, has three movements. Look at our our passage, the good news here, beginning in verse 25, 36, 25. There are three movements. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. The three movements of the gospel, these are going to be the three major movements of the gospel according to Ezekiel. Today we're going to look at the first of them, and then the next couple weeks we're going to look at the next two. But the first is washing and cleaning. The second is I will give you a new heart. And the third is I will put my spirit in you. Washing and cleaning, I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit in you. And I want to spend the next two weeks working out what it means to have a new heart, that God would put a new heart in us, and that God would put, it, and then th- that God would put a new spirit in us. But today, what I want to spend the remainder of our time doing is on this first movement of God's saving power, the first movement of the gospel, according to Ezekiel, and that is the washing and cleansing that he promises for the nation of Israel, and that as we read in the New Testament, that Jesus promises for his people. So let's take a look at that. Look at 30, 3625. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, again, back to this idea of problem and solution. You guys are, might even be working this out in your head. Like, if the, if the solution is sprinkling and cleansing, then what is the problem? Dirty or defiled or unclean? These are all the, the sort of, it, it really is a, it's a, it's a worship metaphor. It's a, it's a temple metaphor. It's what priests would do when, when, they would, when they would sacrifice an animal or when they would do any kind of service. They would have, because they came and they might have been defiled or unclean, they have to cleanse in order to move into pure, holy. And so that's what we have here, sprinkled or washed clean. If the solution is sprinkling and cleaning, then the problem is that you have been defiled. You've been stained. And for the nation, the stain was idolatry. Now, um, I'm not the... I'm not... How should I say this? I'm sometimes a pretty messy eater. Does anybody... And I, like Christmas time, you get new clothes. You guys ever experience this? You get a new shirt, something like Maybe a new sweatshirt. It's even worse with the sweatshirt, right? And then as you're eating or you're drinking some coffee or whatever it is, I, you know, and I know nobody in here ever spills their coffee. I did it like twice in a row as I'm getting into my office, not this morning, but earlier this week. But like I, you, you spill on yourself. Now, what I did this week, what I did this week is I, I spilled, I, I like totally bumped. And I, like you're just... The more in a hurry you get, the more like spilly you get, you know, that's the, okay. And it, it was, it was, luckily it was on my sleeve, but have you ever done this where it's like you just spill on a, the most conspicuous place on whatever it is you are wearing? And I, some of you are like, I know someone, I'm married to somebody like that. Don't, we're not using names, okay? There is no shame here, okay? But all that to say, new shirt, you get a stain on it. And look, I, you know, I stand up in front of people for a living. And so, like, if I get a shirt and I get a stain, I can't wear it up here. And so, it, like, hangs in the closet. And you're like, I don't know what to do with the shirt. Like, it's, I love the shirt. It fits great. I love it. But it's got the stain right here. You guys ever have that experience? And so, you just shelve these things. You put them, you kind of put them out to pasture. And the next time you clean out, you're like, well, I've never, I haven't worn it for, like, a year. I've got it. But I love it. You know, anyway, you have this, like, you guys get the idea, okay? That, that, this idea of the stain. Now, for the nation of Israel, the stain was idolatry. The stain was idolatry. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about Ezekiel 6 and Ezekiel 14, but in Ezekiel 8 through 11, 
Ezekiel's given a tour of the temple, this kind of visionary experience of the temple. And like I said, he sees all these idols. And then he sees ceremonies going on. Back rooms where there's worship going on, not to Yahweh, but to these idols. And we noted, we noted, we talk about this word idolatry, that idolatry sounds to us in the modern world, like Southern California, idolatry. It sounds like an archaic word, doesn't it, right? Like idolatry, I don't have any idols. Like there's nothing that I bow down to, like I put on my mantle. I don't have these little figurines in my house. But we noted that idols... Idols are not just on our mantles. When, when, the, when the elders of Israel come to Ezekiel in chapter 14, God says, hey, Ezekiel, these people don't have idols on their mantles, but they've set up idols in their hearts. And we talked about this idea that an idol, idolatry, an idol is something that we go to to find significance in, like a career, a role, a talent, our impact, our influence, we chase those things. Or maybe it's something we go to to find security or financial resources, maybe a relationship that we're in, just human approval. Or sometimes we just go for sheer power and weaponry, tools of war. So maybe it's something we go to find significance or security or satisfaction, Things that we enjoy, our standard of living, food, drink, sex, entertainment. What do you do for pleasure? What am I thinking of? Here's one way to think about idols. What am I thinking about when I'm not thinking about anything? When I'm not thinking about anything, where does my mind go? And that, that might be an, something as we think about setting up idols in the hearts and what Ezekiel's talking about with the nation of Israel, that they have had these idols and now they're in exile and they don't have a chance for these idols, but maybe they've set them up in their hearts. This is the problem. In, in Ezekiel's world, God's name has been profaned, but the, the, the problem is idolatry. It's the problem. Now, what's the solution? What's the solution if you've got these idols and these ceremonies and things like this? And I've got some ideas, okay? I've got some ideas about the solution, okay? Here are my ideas, and let's see if, let's see if anybody agrees with these solutions, okay? Um, clean out the house. I hear that. We've been doing that. The garage is getting cleaned out. <laughs> Watch out, or you might be conscripted into labor in our house, Okay? Clean out the house. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of the extra stuff. Get rid of the distractions. Maybe this is also you. I need to rework my habits. Need to rework my habits. I bought a book, Atomic Habits. Anybody ever read that book? Awesome book. I'm rereading it. It's about reorienting your life, new habits, new synaptic pathways. I got to work this stuff out. I got to get back in my Bible. I got my Bible. Anybody have a new Bible reading plan this year? Okay, maybe you're listening to the Bible through, or maybe you have a Bible reading plan. I got to get back in my Bible. I got to get back and start reading. You know, another solution makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to you. I need to beat myself up a little bit. I'm kind of an idiot, right? I'm kind of an idiot. No, no comment from any of you. Um, this is just my own self-talk, right? You don't need to chime in. But look, I, I'm kind of a blow it. I'm kind of, I have my problems, and I, like, I don't know if it helps, but it kind of feels like the right thing to do, right? I got to get back to church. Maybe I got to join a small group. I need some accountability, right? 
Now look, I don't want to make, I don't want to make light of this. These are, all, these are all good things, okay? And I'm kind of a little glib about, sarcastic about them, but they are not the solution that God has for the problem. Not in the gospel according to Ezekiel, and not in the gospel according to Jesus. What is God's solution? Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God says you need to be cleansed, and so I will cleanse you. And this is one of the most significant things about the good news, whether it's the good news according to Ezekiel, or the good news according to Jesus, or the good news according to Paul, or John, or James, whoever's giving the good news, this is the good news. The gospel is about God doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Let me say that another way. The gospel is about God doing something in us that we cannot do simply within ourselves. All of these other things that I mentioned, all those other things are helpful, they're, they're great, they're, they're about us doing things. They're helpful, they're productive, but they are all in vain unless God does the work that only God can do. All those other things that I mentioned, whether it's Bible reading, going to church, whatever, that's what we call, look, that's what we call religious activity. They're not, it's not necessarily bad, but it, religion is about humanity trying to figure out ways to get to God. And I'm not saying those are bad, but without the work of God, those things will produce anxiety, they'll produce stress, Morality, ritual, ceremony, spiritual experience, theological rightness. With just those things, lives will vacillate between anxiety and pride. Look, if you're good at all that stuff, there you go. And honestly, like it's like you got these idols. I've got I've got a solution to you. I can fix that problem. I'm a fixer. You know, you give me a problem. My first thing is to fix. I don't listen. I just fix right? Again, I don't want to get in anybody's marriage here, but that, that's the idea, okay? The gospel is about what God has done to bridge that gap with humanity through sending His Son and His Spirit. The gospel results not in anxiety and pride, but in humility in gratitude, and ultimately in freedom. Now, with that gratitude and humility and freedom, engaging in these other things is not necessarily bad. It probably will actually be helpful, but the starting point of the gospel is that God is doing something for His people that they cannot do for themselves. God is doing something in His people that they cannot do with themselves. One thing as you look back at this passage, 
One thing that stands out, if you, if you just take a look back at this passage, beginning in verse 25, is just how many times I will shows up. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. A new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. God is doing this work. And the first work that He does that we cannot do for ourselves is the work of cleansing. And it might be the most uncomfortable work that we allow God to do. Because we like to clean ourselves, cleaning ourselves up, we know where we're dirty and we know where to clean, right? Until someone else is like, hey, did you wash behind your ears? Like, did you get that spot too? Like, right? That sometimes we think we're cleaning ourselves, but we need God to do it. God is the one who does this work. And for Ezekiel, God is being the priest in the sprinkling of water. I suppose as we come, we, we think about this and we kind of come to this where we come to this point, like in Ezekiel chapter 34 um, in verse 11, um, talks about God will send his shepherd, David. And what we know that Ezekiel did not know is that that shepherd, that, that, that image of David was going to be Jesus. And that Jesus was going to offer to cleanse us, to wash us, not with water, but to cleanse us with the blood of Jesus Christ that in the book of Revelation that the Lamb of God, He will cleanse His people with His own blood. I don't exactly know how that works, to be honest. I always thought blood would stain things, but it seems as though God thinks that this blood will wash you white as snow. And I suppose it brings to us, as we think about our own situation, and our own problems, and how God means to move us to the solutions that God has for us. Like if it was up to me, it would just be self-help, right? That's the solution. But God says, no, I will do it. I'll do it. Now, what you do after that will fall, might fall right in line, but I am the one who has to do it. And this is a point where we come and we just say, Look, we all come from different places and we all have different things in our lives. And as we think back, we might think, you know, is there something that I have done that I cannot undo? And as we sit here, there might be those quiet moments where something from the past just continues to pop up and you're like, you continue to feel guilty about it. It's, it's something that maybe you've asked for forgiveness, and, but, but there's something about it continues to dog you. And that that guilt has moved from simply guilt to a deep-seated shame. And that's something that I think is endemic to the entire human race, that there are these things that we do, or, or maybe it's not something that I've done, but maybe it's something that someone else has done to me, that someone has perpetrated some sort of, their sin has overlapped on me, and it has caused me to feel a deep sense of shame, of being stained, of having something that I cannot wash out. Have you done something you can't undo? Have you seen something you can't unsee? Has someone done something to you that you cannot escape? 
You're stained. You feel stained. God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God can cleanse that. And part of our believing that is believing, taking God at his word when he says, I will cleanse you and you will be cleansed. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite books um, is uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody in the Chronicles of Narnia? It's my favorite book in the, in the Chronicles. Um, I have nicer books, but this was, a, I, I brought my old one. My, my, it feels old now. But um, anyway, one of the great stories is they get on this island. Well, when they, when they go into the, they magically go into, the kids go magically go into the land, but one of the people who goes into the land is this young man named Eustace. Eustace Scrub, right? He's, he's, he is a nasty boy. Like, he's just, he's just kind of cantankerous and is, is a malcontent. And he just, if, you know, if you've read the books, you know Eustace is just not the guy you want to have around. He's always got a complaint. He's always got a, a quick word. He's always, and so they, they land on this island, and Eustace is kind of all about himself. Like, everybody else is kind of working. They're on this boat, and they're, on, they're, they're charting these islands, and they land on this boat, and they get on this island, and, and it's all a team, except Eustace is all really about himself. And so he finds himself... In this, in this cave. And in this cave is just all this treasure. It's just all this treasure. And what they find is that this was a dragon's cave. The dragon has died, but all the treasure is right there. And Eustace, as he's in this cave, he starts, as, as it says in the book, he starts to think dragony thoughts. All the, this is mine. I'm, how do I hide it from all these people? And he puts this little bracelet on his arm, and he's got all this stuff, and he's trying to figure out, he's, he's thinking dragony thoughts in a dragony place. And what happens to Eustace? He turns into a dragon. And it's great for a time because he's coming around, and he can light the fire really good because he can breathe fire like he's a dragon, right? And he can fly over and you know, all this stuff, and, and he can, rec- he can, he can re- do reconnaissance on the island. But eventually, they're like, well, we got to redo all our provisions. But eventually, we're like, we got to leave. What are we going to do with a dragon? And so there's this question about what do we do with Eustace, the dragon boy? Until one night, Edmund, who's one of the original kids in the story, says this. About six days after they had landed on Dragon Island, Edmund happened to wake up very early one morning. It was just getting gray so that you could see the tree trunks if they were between you and the bay, but not the other direction. As he woke, he thought he heard something moving, so he raised himself on one elbow, looked around him, And presently he thought he saw a dark figure moving on the seaward side of the wood. The idea at once occurred to his mind, are we so sure there's no natives on this island after all? Then he thought it was Caspian. It was about the right size, but he knew that Caspian had been sleeping next to him and he could see that he hadn't moved. Edmund made sure his sword was in place and he rose to investigate. He came down softly to the edge of the wood and the dark figure was still there. He saw now that it was too small for Caspian and too big for Lucy. It did not run away. Edmund drew his sword and was about to challenge the stranger when the stranger said in a low voice, Is that you, Edmund? Yes, who are you, he said. Don't you know me, he said. It's me, Eustace. 
By Jove, said Edmund, so it is. My dear chap. Hush, said Eustace, as he lurched as if he were going to fall. Hello, said Edmund, steadying him. What's up? Are you ill? Eustace was silent for so long that Edmund thought he was fainting, but at last he said, It's been ghastly. You don't know, but it's all right now. Could we go talk somewhere? I don't want to meet the others just yet. Yes, anywhere you like, it said Edmund. We can go sit by the rocks over there. I am glad to see you looking uh, yourself again. You must have had a pretty beastly time. They went to the rocks and sat down looking out across the bay while the sky got paler and paler and the stars disappeared except for one very bright low one on, near on the horizon. I won't tell you how I became a dragon till I can tell the others and get it all over, said Eustace. By the way, I didn't even know it was a dragon till I heard you all using the word when I turned up here the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Firehead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever. I had this beastly arm ring when he had become a dragon. The arm ring started to pinch his arm and uh, it was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? Eustace laughed, a, a different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before. He slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have all been a dream. I don't know. Go on, said Edmund with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came up closer to me and looked me straight into the eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know now that you mention it. I don't think it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to go and do what it told me. So I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever it went. So at last we came to the top of the mountain I'd never seen before. And on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought, if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on. I'm a dragon. When suddenly I thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself. And all the scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness. Or if I was a banana. <laughs> In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. And it was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and saw 
It was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as, as it has been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. So I'll have to get that off too. So I scratched and tore again under this skin. It peeled off beautifully. I stepped out, left it lying beside the other one, and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time, got off a third skin, just like the two others, stepped out of it, but as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, I don't know if he spoke, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab in a sore space, a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's so much fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And as I thought I'd done before the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there was lying on the grass ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I would saw why. I'd turn into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they're no muscle and they're pretty moldy compared to Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes. The same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes, for one thing. And you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. And of course, Aslan is the Jesus character, the Christ figure of the book. And this reminder, we will try to cleanse ourselves. And in the gospel, according to Ezekiel, we have all kinds of strategies of our de-dragoning, of our cleansing. But the gospel is that God will do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And when God does it, we have to take Him at His word that we have been cleansed. And we have to think about those old, that old shame and that old guilt, and we have to give it back, and we have to say, that is not who I am anymore. And I don't know, in your spiritual journey, if you've come to this place and you have asked for God's forgiveness and you have 
trusted that God would do that, or if this is the first time and you haven't ever asked for that. But what I know is that the gospel is not self-improvement. The gospel is God doing something for us and in us that we cannot do for ourselves. Eventually, our behavior will line up. Eustace, at the end of this, he's no longer greedy. He's happy to give away the treasure. He's happy to be helpful. His whole, con- his whole continence has changed because he's been de-dragoned by Aslan. And we trust that God will cleanse us of the things that, the stains that we feel like we cannot get out. We will not be the shirt hung up in the closet just waiting for the day to be thrown out because it's no longer useful. God is faithful to cleanse. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And if Ezekiel were standing here today, because Ezekiel has gone to be with the Lord, and if Ezekiel were standing here today, he would say, look, I've got a great, this is a great book, you should read my book, right? Ezekiel would say that, because any writer is like, no, you need to read my book. Um, But Ezekiel would also say, God has fulfilled what I wrote in the person of Jesus. If you want cleansing, go to Jesus. Ask him, Jesus, I feel like I've done some things that I cannot undo. I feel like there have been some things that have been done to me that I cannot undo. I've seen some things that I cannot unsee, and I don't know how to move forward without you. And so I trust that coming to you that you would cleanse me. Would you cleanse me, Jesus? And if that's you, if that's you today, I I just would encourage you to pray that prayer, to sit as we sing, to reflect, to ask, to pray that prayer to Jesus. To ask him to de-dragon you and to reclothe you, to cleanse you. And then to walk in the newness of life that he might make you a person again and not a dragon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that 500 years after Ezekiel, God, you sent your son, Jesus. That you sent your spirit. And that we can be born again of water and the Spirit. That Jesus, you are the good shepherd. That Jesus, you have done something for us that we could not have done for ourselves. That Spirit, you are doing something in us that we cannot do ourselves. And we want to put our faith and trust in that work Father, the the work that you have done in your Son and your Spirit this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.